It happens this time every year. Most folks look forward to them. You, you turn your television on to one of the 87,000 channels that you have access to, and uh, you, you'll find one or more of these Christmas classics on. I don't mean just the Christmas shows, I mean the, the classics. Um, you know, that smooth baritone voice of Bing Crosby in, in White Christmas. For some of you, what about Miracle on 34th Street? Or, or um, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. I can't really do it as low as you're supposed to do it, but there's that, that grand spiritual classic, the original Home Alone. I mean, it's... And kids, they still rave over a Charlie Brown Christmas or... Um, Polar Express, that's, that's a big one. That's a big one for the kids. And, and Christmas would never be the same without uh, the 1843 that was made into a movie, um, Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol, which is my personal favorite, the one with George C. Scott. I don't know which one's your favorite one, but I mean, that's just, that's just so good. And it's always up there toward the top of the list, and every year it shows multiple times, it's a wonderful life. You know, there's Clarence, Angel Second Class, and, and, and George Bailey, and I love the line where Clarence is telling George that he's the angel that's been assigned to help him, and George looks at Clarence and says, well, you look like about the kind of angel I'd get. You remember, you remember that scene? It's a great scene. And this time of year, a lot of people talk about angels. Okay, middle school, question. Multiple question number one. An angel appeared to Mary, a godly teenage virgin, virgin told her that she was gonna give birth to the Son of God. What was that angel's name? Was it Michael? Was it Gabriel? Was it Apollos? Which one is it? Was it Michael? Was it Gabriel? It was Gabriel. Question number two, when Jesus was born, angels showed up and the skies were filled with celebration and praise. The angel said, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Who did the angel say that to? Was it to the people in Bethlehem? Was it to Herod the king? Was it to the shepherds? Was it to the wise men? Whom did the angel say that to? Shepherds, you're passing, you're passing two for two. You're going to win a Chick-fil-A gift card if you keep this up. <laughs> Angels, you, you see them in the Christmas story. And, and every year, a multitude of questions always come up regarding angels. Question three, true or false? Angels are real. They, they are real. Um, I, I made a short list. Um, the Bible tells us some interesting, really powerful truths about angels. This isn't all of them, but, um, but, but it's important to say this. You know, some things that the Bible, the Bible says about angels, that's the only place to go to get the tr truth. Um, but, but, you know, number one, uh, there are a lot of them. There are a lot of angels. Uh, number two, they are, they are spirit beings, not physical beings, although rarely at times throughout history, they appear physically as an angel. And more often than appearing physically as an angel, they show up in disguise. Hebrews says this, 
Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to provide service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Chapter 1, verse 14, book of Hebrews. Angels are not eternal. That is, there was some time in the past, in the ancient past, God created them. They are created beings. They are not eternal beings that just always were. A lot of people think they were, but they, they aren't. They, they're created. They don't die of old age. They aren't all-knowing. They can't be everywhere at one time like God can. They're not all-powerful. They can't do everything, but they are very powerful. And they're still at work around us. Here's one thing the Bible says about angels. I don't know how many times over the decades I have heard people say this, especially at funerals. But when they say it, it's wrong um, because it's not what the Bible says. When you die, Christian, you don't become an angel. As a matter of fact, in this book, and you can look at it for yourself, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, read it for yourself. If you died, went to heaven, became an angel, that would actually be a demotion. Because when God, the Son of God, died for you and saved you and raised you up and made you a son and made you a daughter, he placed you on a higher plane than even the angels themselves. And what First Peter says is that in heaven, the angels, the, the, literal, weak, the, the literal word spoken of in First Peter says, the angels bend over and look down at us and they are, at in, they are in awe at what this thing called salvation could possibly mean. They can't under, even an angel can't understand the magnitude and the greatness and what it is like to go from being lost to being saved, go from darkness to light, go from being an enemy of God to a child of God, go from headed to eternal destruction to eternal life. They are in awe at the salvation that you and I hold and you and I have and the salvation that holds us. So when you die, Christian, you don't become an angel. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not what this says. And in the Bible, um, I think there are only four angels that are actually named. Too bad and too good. Uh, Apollyon, one of the bad ones, uh, he's the angel of the abyss. In the Old Testament Hebrew word for him, uh, names him um, Abaddon. And he is a bad one. He is bad. The other bad angel that's named, Lucifer, Satan, Beelzebub. Um, in, in, the, in the Old Testament, he's also called Beelzebub. The Hebrew word for that means Lord of filth, Lord of dung. That's how God defines and names Satan. Two bad angels name, two good angels name. One of them's name I particularly like, his name is Michael. His name is a question, it means who is like God? It's not who's like God, it's like who out there in the universes is like unto our God. There is no other, that's what Michael means. And the other name, this angel that's named is, is Gabriel. Whenever you see Gabriel, he's always proclaiming something. He's always announcing something. Every time he comes, he comes with a message. And, and all of God's, 
angels are awesome, but Gabriel is interesting in that the Bible describes him as one who stands in the presence of God. He's the one that shows up and tells Zechariah and Elizabeth, well, Zechariah, and then later Zechariah tells Elizabeth, you're going to have a son, you're going to name him John. Incredible. He's the one who shows up to a young teenage girl, virgin by the name of Mary, and says, you are going to give birth to heaven's king. Because Gabriel is the one who shows up and announces, proclaims so many things, um, he's, he's also called the angel of annunciation. There's so many fascinating, relevant, helpful stories in this book, but this morning we're going to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to run into Gabriel. We're going to run into Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, but as you're making your way to Luke chapter 1, you need to know, you might already know, uh, Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. Matter of fact, over half of what you read in Luke, you don't read in any other book in the Bible. It's only here in Luke. And one of the things that I so appreciate, so appreciate about Luke, is Luke doesn't just give you the facts of what happened, and the facts are important. Luke also peels back the page and, and, and shows you the emotion that is taking place, what people were talking about, what people were feeling, what people were thinking. You readily see that in, in the stories in Luke. He, 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 he doesn't just tell you what happened. He tells you what people were thinking about what happened. He tells you what people were feeling about what happened. You know, when I read Luke, sometimes I start reading it. I just, I just cry because I, 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 I'm, I'm thinking about what Luke's trying to communicate. Luke, Luke's an incredible. They're all incredible. But this morning, we get to peel back and, and dig down into Luke chapter one. You, you've got it there. Um, we're gonna begin in verse five. There's a lot more than, that we could say than it, but beginning in verse five, Luke one says that in the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Verse six, both of them did what was right in the sight of God, and they obeyed all the Lord's commands and rules faithfully. Verse 7, but they had no children because Elizabeth was not able to have any. And they were both very old. Godly couple, incredible man and woman named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah, his name means the Lord remembers although I promise you that Lucifer often whispered in his ear, the Lord has forgotten you. He does that. Whenever, he, whenever the enemy whispers, he's always lied. He can't move his lips without telling a lie. Jesus says he's the father of lies and nothing truthful ever comes out of his mouth. But Zechariah's name means the Lord remembers. And since the law of Moses insisted that a priest Mary, only a woman of the highest reputation. Zechariah goes and he chooses a daughter of another priest to be his wife. Matter of fact, the daughter of another priest that he chose to be his wife, she was not only a descendant of Aaron, she bore the same name that Aaron's 
wife way back when originally had the name Elizabeth, which her name means the oath of God. And Luke describes the problem and the struggle. And you feel it. They're childless and they're old. You know, growing up as a kid, I'd read the passage and it would say, they're well along in years. They're well, which, which is the Bible's way of saying they're way past the time of childbearing. And in that, in that day, it was a hopeless situation. They lived with this brokenheartedness that our family tree ends here. Our line dies with us, with us. Once we're no more, family tree just vaporizes. And as the years passed, Zachariah's contemporaries, his fellow priests especially, they, they would remind him of his options. Zachariah, Elizabeth cannot give you a son, cannot give you children. You've got options, man. You've got options. Option number three, divorcer. And, and he could have divorced her. In, in that society, in that day, barrenness was seen not only as, as a curse, but it was also commonly accepted grounds for divorce. He could have gotten rid of her. Nobody would have had a problem with it. In society, they wouldn't have had a problem with it. He could have married a younger woman. He could have had all kinds of children. By his new wife, he could have gotten this curse off his back that there are no descendants in his family tree. That was one of his options. You stand at an altar, men, before God and everybody. And you hold the hand of this woman that you are committing your life to and that you are choosing and this woman who's holding your hand and choosing you and you look her in the eye and you make her a promise. A promise to have and to hold from this day forward in sickness and in health for better, for worse, in love to cherish till death do us part for richer, for poorer. For better, for worse, a promise, you make a promise, for better, for worse. And we, we love that better stuff. Life has all kinds of that better stuff. We, I mean, just bring it, we, we just love it. We can't get enough of it, just, I mean, I could enumerate them, but we, we love all that better stuff. We aren't so prepared for the worse stuff. You know, the worst stuff, the, the pain and the sorrow and the regret and the tears and the hurt. And its, it's companions are anger and grief and frustration and heartbreak and exhaustion that sometimes leads you to this point of just feeling hopeless, absolutely hopeless. People joke about Murphy. You know Murphy, Murphy. Um, if I give you his last name, that'll give you a clue who he is. Murphy's Law. You're familiar with Murphy's Law. Shake your head, yeah, I know who Murphy's Law is. Um, 
growing up, Murphy didn't visit our house. He lived in our house. <laughs> he had his own room. Some of us didn't have a room, but he had a room. Murphy had his own place at the dining room table. Three meals a day, he could sit there. Sometimes he was, he was usually at least three or four times a week he was at our table, but a lot of time he was just out creating havoc in, 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 in all other kinds of people's lives. But, but Murphy was just he, just, he lived in our house. And you think I'm joking. I'm not, I'm not joking. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you straight up. He, just, he, lived, he lived in our house. And I shouldn't have been surprised. I mean, I'll just give you a 60-second thumbnail sketch. When my newborn self came home from the hospital, um, my sister attacked me. It's the truth. Mom, you, you, you can go to Silcoat. Mama tell you the truth. I mean, she was only three years old, but the problem was she didn't want this newborn baby to steal any of her limelight. Teeth marks were there. I'm glad. I'm glad that Mama heard me screaming, but, but that was a defining moment in my life. You know, I came out, I, I, I left this warm, safe place where I just heard the heartbeat of my mom and I came into this world. The doctor slapped me on the backside and probably in the face and they, they threw me in this cold house and the next thing I know, I've got this, I've got this, I don't know, her teeth are in me. That's how life started. Sometime around a, a year and a half, you know, this toddler, our mom said you started walking at, at one, but you're, you didn't walk right. You know, I guess it was something about how your legs were turned in the womb. And, and so about one and a half, I, I had steel braces on my legs and they, they called them corrective shoes. Corrective shoes. That's how life started in my house. There weren't any silver spoons um, in my house, just guns and knives and sharp pointy things that hurt and things that go bump in the night. People would say, Mikey, why are you always looking over your shoulder with that scared look on your face? You grew up in my house, you know exactly why I was always looking over my shoulder. But I'm not the only one in the room, right? God was always good to us, but life has been so hard, so hard. The same year that my mom got me that Bible that, that you saw on the screen that I held up this past Wednesday night, the same year that she got me that Bible was the first time, the same year that I, I saw my dad drunk for the first time. That one was a game changer. Decades of alcoholism. I remembered that other night we were standing in the living room in our little 12 by 65 trailer that we lived in and my, and my dad is trying to head out the front door and I'm getting between, I think I was 12 or 13 years old. I, I got between him and the front door. I can still see us standing there and I'm like this and he's like this and my hands are on. He had a Browning A5 Belgium made 12 gauge shotgun ventilated rib. Men, do you know what I'm talking about? It was loaded. It was chambered. 12, 13-year-old kid holding this gun. Dad, you can't, you can't leave with this gun. He was drunk. 
He didn't know who ran over his dog, but he was going to make him pay. And I thought, whoever dad runs into, and dad wasn't like that. Dad was a gentle man. Dad was a kind-hearted, kind-spirited man. He loved people. I cannot tell you the number of people, and he would never tell you the number of people that he bought groceries for when he was a manager of birds there in Siler City, North Carolina. He was a grocery store manager. He helped people all over that town. He helped tons of students all over that town. But that night he was drunk and he wasn't thinking right. I, had, I would have no, I got the gun from him. I got the gun from him. But I had no idea that that same exact gun 40 years later, our son would use to take his life with. Life has a whole lot of for better, for worse. That's his gravestone. I, I stopped by on the way Friday back had lunch with mom this past Friday and I, I thought I'd stop by the Mount Vernon United Methodist Church Cemetery and stand at the graveside of my son. Didn't have much to say. I looked over at my dad's grave, which is, is just left of Aaron's grave. Now this picture wasn't taken Friday because this picture was taken with snow on the ground, but right to the left of that out of the screen, you can't see it, but there's my dad's grave marker. And I didn't say much to Aaron, I just, but I did say, dad, I you would have never believed what he did. I think I said something about I'm glad that you weren't around to see it. I don't know if he'd ever survived it. I'm saying there's a, there's a whole lot of for better and for worse. My question to you is, what are you going to do when for worse shows up at your door? Are you going to keep your promises? Are you going to keep your commitments? Are you going to hold on to your faith? Are you going to do the right thing? Zechariah and Elizabeth, they did the right thing. What do you mean they, they did the right thing? Look, look, look back again. Verse, well, go down to verses 6 and 7. We've read 5, 6, and 7, but look at verse 6. Both of them did... What was right in the sight of God, they obeyed all the Lord's commands and rules faithfully. But they had no children because Elizabeth was not able to have any, and they were both very old. They did what was right in the sight of God, not what was convenient or what culture's flavor of the day said. They didn't take the easy way out, which you know this, you know this. There is no easy way out. There is no such thing as the easy way out. It's rarely easy. But here's what I painfully watched people do across the years. They allow what happens in verse 7 to affect their commitment, their promises, their steadfastness that's represented in verse 6. Between verse 6 and verse 7, there is this thing called life. Look at that space. Look at that space between verses 6 and 7. Stuff happens in there. Life happens in there. Better and worse happens in there. And here's what life will try to do to you. The shout of praise that, that, that comes from your heart and from your lips on Sunday will turn to screams of praise by Thursday because of that thing that hits you between the eyes. Christian, don't, 
Don't let what happens around you or what happens to you rob you of your commitment or rob you of your joy that faith produces for the one who follows and obeys Christ. It's part of what Luke is trying to help us see. When we, when we look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, the story is not just about the priest and his bride. It's about you and the person that's sitting beside of you and the person that lives on your street and the person that you work with and the folks that you'll be with Christmas holiday celebrations with. The thing that hit Zechariah and Elizabeth between the eyes was the reality that there's no baby in the nursery. Verse seven, but they had no children because Elizabeth was not able to have any. And the culture of the day, said Zechariah, ditch this marriage, get you a younger model, fill up this nursery. That's the route that many people in his day took when you came to a situation like this. That's the, that's the route that many other men walked, but not this man. Option three was divorce. Option two, another option that he had was just Give up is a lost cause. There's going to be no children in this family tree. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they, they walk through all that same stuff that, that, that so many on planet Earth walk through. It gets increasingly difficult to go to that Christmas party and Bethy Sue is great with child again, and you're still trying to have your first one. Or you're sitting there at your nephew's kindergarten graduation, and you're wondering what your boy would look like if he were standing up there. Or tears roll, tears roll down your, 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 your cheek at that college graduation because if... If he were here, he'd be up there. And you're more than willing to help your cousin paint the nursery, either blue or pink. And by the way, that's all that there is. It's just blue or pink. <laughs> but you know, when, you, when you're painting that nursery, and you're doing it with joy, and you're so happy for, for Bethy Sue, but somewhere down in this, in your soul, there's just this hollow hurt because there's not any kid on my family tree. That's what Luke is trying to help us see right here. Church is trying to help us see. And, and so many people, what they'll do is they'll, they'll throw their hands up and they'll say, well, we just got accepted. This is... But what a lot of people do is they say, well, God, God can't work in this situation. Would, would, this is just how it is. And, and they take this step down and they just abandon their faith. I give up. I'm tired of hoping. I'm tired of believing. I'm tired of trying. I'm tired of praying. I'm through. Option three, I'm free. We're done. I'm going to divorce you. Option two, I'm through, I'm done. Aren't you glad there's an option one? 
I'm not trying to say that in every situation, in every womb of every person on, on planet Earth, that God's always going to do the same for them that he did for Zechariah and Elizabeth. That ain't, that's not how life works. That's not how the Bible works. There were other barren women that didn't give birth. We're just talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth here. We're also talking about us. Option one, don't miss this one. You know, because they committed themselves and the situation to the only one who could do something about it. Zachariah and Elizabeth, they prayed about it. And they prayed about it, and they prayed about it, and they prayed about it, and they committed their, their problem to God, and they kept on doing, simply doing the jobs that God had given them to do. They didn't quit, they didn't run, they didn't blame, they didn't curse. They just kept on doing what God had called them to do, and in the meantime, they're praying, and they're praying, and they're praying, and they're praying. There's all kinds of life principles here. You, you readily see them. I just mentioned a couple of them. One, they didn't bail they bowed. They didn't bow out, they bowed down. They didn't throw up their hands in frustration, they lifted their hands and they lifted their head in faith. They didn't bow out, they bowed down. Here's another principle that I see in Luke chapter one. They didn't run from the problem, they ran to their God. And whatever God says to me is okay. I mean, sometimes God says no. And sometimes God says go. No means no. Go means yes. Sometimes God says slow means it's happening, but you're going to have to wait a while. God did that a whole lot. Abraham and Sarah, I mean, 75, Abraham's 75 years old. God says, I'm going to give you a son. Your descendants will be like the stars of the heavens, sands of the seashore. You won't be able to count them. Abraham's 75 years old. He's 99 when Doc shows up in his tent and slaps the rear end of his little boy. 24 years. Sometimes God says no, sometimes God says go, sometimes God says slow. Well, what they did is they, they ran to their God. You need to know that Zechariah, he was not one of the more famous, powerful, notable priests in his day. Um, as a matter of fact, in our terminology, he would have been known as a Western North Carolina hillbilly priest in an obscure, small, out-of-the-way town that was so insignificant it's not even named. That was Zechariah. If Zechariah had lived in the great state of North Carolina, he would have lived in, a, in, a, in, in towns called Aquadale. You ever been to Aquadale, North Carolina? How about Bostick, or Crossnor, or Messick, or Salvo? Anybody been to Salvo, North Carolina lately, or Turkey? Turkey, North Carolina. What about Toad Suck? <laughs> actually, 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 Toad Suck is in Arkansas. You get on 40, you're, you're outside a little rock, and you come to this big brown sign on the right-hand side of our 40-headed west. Toad Suck. If I lived in Toadsuck, I would move. <laughs> Zechariah and Elizabeth, they lived nowhere that mattered. He was old, he was unappreciated, as was his wife. They were not on the who's who list 
of anywhere. They didn't live as a lot of the other priests lived in the elite section of the city of Jerusalem or in Jericho, the city of Palms. They lived in the southern, southern rolling hills of Judea. That's why we like them so much, because they're from the south. They just, they're from the south. I'm just joking about that. I'm just joking. But there was this day that came that Zechariah, the priest, was chosen to serve, to lead in the temple worship, specifically related to prayer. Luke 1 tells the story. You understand there were many priests in that day, about 20,000 of them. And the 20,000 priests were divided into one of 24 divisions of priests. um, Zechariah was from Abijah's division, the eighth division out of the 24 division of priests, about 20,000 priests in all. And, And Abijah's division, the eighth division of priests, was chosen to represent the people before God in the temple worship and in the time of prayer. And out of Abijah's division, out of all the priests that could have been chosen, Zechariah was the one that was chosen. He, he was chosen for the high, very high privilege of burning the incense, which they say was such a high privilege that if you were chosen, you would only do it one time in your lifetime. And most of the priests would have never been chosen, but he was called up. We don't understand it because we're Americans and we don't have that kind of culture around us, but to say that it was a big deal is like saying Kilimanjaro is an anthill. It was a huge deal. And so on that great day, this godly, faithful priest, he went into the holy place of the temple. You understand there was no other place on the planet like the temple. There were two rooms, two main rooms in the temple. One was called the holy place. It was a little bit larger, not much larger, but a little bit larger. And then in the, in, in, in the back of that great room was the most holy place, the holy of holies, the place where the high priest one time a year would go into the holy of holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That That's where God met with the high priest. There wasn't anything anything like it anywhere else in the world. And and Zechariah walks into the larger room to to the holy place. He's going to burn incense and he's going to pray. He he would enter the holy place. He he would bear the golden censer which held the incense. And at a given time, he would spread the incense out over the coals of fire. And, And as the incense hit the coals, the smoke and the smell would rise up and, and the people outside, they would smell it and they would know that the prayers are going up to our God, that this holy man was praying on our behalf and the people outside would begin praying and, and, and often God would just come down. It was, a, it was a beautiful symbolic experience of worship and you and I can't imagine it because we don't have anything like it in our culture. But when he entered the holy place, it was only illuminated by the, the one little light of the lampstand and and as he stood there in worship and in prayer and in awe at the God that he stood before, something happened that had never happened to any priest ever in the holy place. 
doing that. Gabriel stood before him. I would, I would imagine this glorious light pierced that dimly lit room. Church, a, a visit from an angel of God was such a distinction. It, it's only been afforded to a few people throughout all of human history. Gabriel shows up. This messenger of God, this one who stands in the presence of God, this one who's just left the holy halls of heaven and come down to the holy place to meet with Gabriel. I'd say God says you're pretty important to him. It's right here. Let's, let's read it together. Um, start down in verse 11 of Luke chapter 1. You, you got to read this Christmas story for yourself. We don't, we don't read it all because of time, but begin with me in verse 11, uh, uh, verses 11 and following. It says, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your, isn't that great? I got to keep going. Your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. You're not going to pray a prayer that God doesn't hear. Your prayer has, I, I, I got it on. Your prayer, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you'll have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the dis disobedient to the, to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Verse 18, and, and Zechariah said to the angel, If this ever happens to you, just a word of, of caution. <laughs> if God is speaking, I probably shouldn't be. And if Gabriel shows up and says anything, I ought to believe him. Just saying. Just saying. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For, for I'm an old man. And my wife, we, we are AARP. We're Geritol. We got the shoes and we got the, we got the canes and we got the... How can I know that what you're telling me is true? My wife is advanced in years. Gabriel, are you familiar with the phrase, we're older than dirt? And he's, he's, he's saying this to Gabriel. Verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Zachariah's thinking, oh, no. I stepped in it. I messed up. 
And then the next thing that comes out of Gabriel's mouth is in behold, verse 20, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. God's going to do what God's going to do whether you believe it or not. God's going to do what God's going to do whether you think he's going to do it or not. God is God and he don't rely on you to determine whether or not he can do whatever it is that he's going to do because he's God and you ain't. Wait, ain't isn't the right word. And, and verse 21, the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them but he had not learned sign language and they couldn't read it if he did know it. And so he's trying to describe all this thing, but it kind of looks like interpretive dance to them. They don't know what that is. And, and he's, he's given all these signs, but they can't make it out. And, and he remained mute. He couldn't speak. And when his time of service was ended, which means he stayed there longer, he went home. He went home. And after these days, Elizabeth conceived. Verse 24, I'm guessing when he went home, he wrote her a note because she couldn't figure out his sign language either because he was, he was literally speechless. When he said what he said in the note, she probably cried. I don't know. I don't think she would have laughed like, no, no way this can happen. The question is this, is impossible possible? I'm leaving out a lot of the story, but time passes. She's conceived. She's, she's now six months pregnant. When Elizabeth is six months pregnant, the Bible says that Gabriel leaves heaven, heads down to North Galilee to a city called Nazareth. Heaven is getting ready to announce some even greater news. The greatest news that, that this world has ever known, that God is coming, not just to visit but to live among us. There's going to be an empty seat in heaven because Emmanuel is coming. And he's going to leave the, the eternal splendor of heaven and he's coming down here to live among the dusty roads of men. Elizabeth is great with child. Gabriel comes down, shows up at Mary's place. Says, Mary, nothing is impossible with God. He gives an example of that. We're not going into the long conversation that he and Mary had. It was a great conversation. You can read that for yourself. But, but, but he gives Mary an example of the fact that nothing is impossible with God. He says, you know, you know your, your barren cousin, Elizabeth? She's now six months pregnant. They're getting the nursery together. They've painted it a beautiful baby blue. His name is John. There's going to be some screaming and some squalling in Zechariah and Elizabeth's tent. It's, it's, it's coming. It's just, it's just 12 weeks away. So Mary, she immediately pulls out her not-so-designer luggage. She packs what she needs. She leaves North Galilee, Nazareth, and she, she goes to the Judean hillside where Elizabeth and Zechariah live, about 90 miles away, about a five-day's journey if you make you know, 18, 20 miles a day. 
You know, people ask the question, well, why did Mary go to Elizabeth's house? Well, there are a lot of reasons why she went. One was obviously, Gabriel told me that you were pregnant. And Mary knew that they'd been trying for decades to have kids and no kids. It was a big deal. And Mary's cell phone was broken. The internet was down. I mean, there was just, the postal service, they were on strike. And, and, and you know, they just converted all the gas delivery cars to electric vehicles. And so none of them worked. And so there was, there was no way that they could get a message down there. To, so she just went there. And she shows up. One of the reasons she showed up, I know, was because she needed to talk some of this out. Elizabeth Gabriel showed up to me too. And he told me that I'm going to give birth to a son. Elizabeth, you and, you and Zachariah, you've been trying to have kids forever. I, I'm a virgin and now inside of me is the son of God. They'd have had to talk about that kind of thing, you know. It's interesting, it's interesting the contrast in Luke's account. You know, Zechariah was a man. Mary was a woman. Zechariah was a priest. Mary was a, a peasant. Zechariah and his wife were elderly. Mary, she was young. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were married. Mary, she was an unmarried virgin. Zechariah, he originally doubted Gabriel's message. Mary believed him, but believed Gabriel. So Mary arrives at, at Zechariah and Elizabeth's house. You know, you read, you read verse 39. Well, let's just, let's just read the verse 39. Verse, verse 39 says, In those days Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of, of Judah, verse 40. When she entered Zechariah's house, where, where she entered Zechariah's house, and greeted Elizabeth, verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting. The baby inside her leaped. You think about it. John the Baptist is, is six months old. Jesus is probably six days old. We don't know exactly how many days, but, but Jesus would have just been a little fetus. He, he would have just been a tiny speck inside the womb of, of that virgin child. But when Christ enters the room, John jumped. The Holy Spirit was already at work in that little baby's life even before he was born. And he jumped and he rejoiced because his Savior just walked into the room. Mike, why do you have joy? Why do you jump? Because the Savior's always in the room. And in that moment, you know, we won't read it, but Mary, she just erupts and prays. Quiet, quiet Mary. What she says, they, they say is the Magnificat. And you can read it for yourself, but she erupts in this praise and worship and wonder. And, and there's this, this song that comes out of her heart. Some of you don't know this. You know, back in Mary's day, the Israel, the people of God, they were the only ones that sang. The Babylonians didn't sing. The Egyptians didn't sing because they didn't have anything to sing about. 
People would come from different parts. This is true. People would come from different parts of the world. They would come to the land of Israel just to hear the people of God sing and praise and worship because they had something to sing about. They had something to praise and worship for. They had someone who they praised and worshiped. And, and, and you look at different religions around the world today, they might chant. Muslims and the Buddhists, they chant. But God's people sang. I'm not making fun of people. I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying when you don't have anything to sing about, you don't sing. When you got something to sing about, <laughs> you, you, shout, you shout it out. Some, some of your parents and my, my mom, some of our parents and our grandparents, they're, they're standing in church today and, and they're singing this great old hymn of the faith. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. Who yielded his life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may come in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he has done. You know who wrote that, right? Fanny, Fanny Crosby. Um, she was one of the most prolific hymnists in history. She wrote, the woman wrote over 8,000 8,000 hymns and gospel songs. She was a member of the 6th Avenue Bible Baptist Church in Brooklyn, New York, and she was blind. She was handed blindness, but blindness didn't inhibit her praise, and blindness didn't cause her to not see what was there. Praise is a beautiful thing. Isaiah says, the people who are called by my name, the people that I formed for myself will declare my, my praise. Luke emphasizes that all of this truly happened in real, measurable, rock-solid, unalterable, non-mythological, unchangeable history. When Herod was the king of Judea, when Zechariah, the priest of the division of Abijah, was priest, when Elizabeth, one of the daughters of Aaron, was his wife, when Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. All of this happened just like it says. And Luke has a word for us today, and his word for us today is what to man seems to be impossible with God is possible. With God, all things are possible. With God, your impossible is possible. Without God, your probable is not even possible. Look at the word impossible. You can see it on the screen or you can see it at the bottom of your note-taking guide, the word impossible. And that's what Zechariah and Elizabeth were faced with. They were faced with impossible. It's a reminder to us today that you can look at that thing that happens between verse six and seven, that thing that's called life, the for better and the for worse, and you can look at your situation and you can say, it's just impossible. Or you can be that person who by the eyes of faith and the heart of hope and the life of joy can see that when God enters a situation, the thing that says 
well, it's just impossible, becomes I'm possible. I wonder if, if on your handout, if, if you would write down there at the bottom, you see that little word, you see that little word impossible. Between the I and the M in impossible, would, would you just write down some symbol, some something that reminds you that when God is in a situation, what seems to be to men to be impossible, when God walks in it, it goes from being impossible to I'm possible. And when I live in the land of I'm possible, not I'm possible, but he's possible. When I live in that place of God's saying, I'm possible. Changes everything. Well, Christian, you can read it for yourself. And the story's not just about them. It's about you. It's about me. Pray with me if you would. Father, in this place today, we bow our knees. We bow and yield our wills. We bow and yield our thinking. We submit ourselves to the God who is God, who is always doing the impossible. And Father, in our lives, in our story, in our circumstances, God, I pray that you would help us to choose faith, to choose prayer, to choose to listen to Christ, not culture, to choose to listen to the man the son of man, not the sons of men. Lord, we trust you with life. We trust you with forever. We trust you for here. We trust you for hereafter. God, I pray that you would grow our faith in such a way that, Lord, if you ever did, and I know you're not going to, but if you ever did, if you ever had chosen to tell our story in this book, we'd look an awful lot like Zachariah and Elizabeth. But I know that up there in the halls of heaven, you're recording our lives. You're making note of our faith. You're hearing our prayers. God, I pray that we would walk as men and women of faith. Faith in the God who can. And we will trust you no matter what you do, no matter what you say. Because we're your sons and your daughters. And we trust our Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.